All right, guys. If you have your Bible, find the book of Revelation, chapter 12. I am glad to pick back up in our study through Revelation with you. And we're in chapter 12 today. Just to set the stage for understanding the book of Revelation a little more, that's, um, that's, I have a couple of, this is Sunday school, right? So I have a couple of aims every time I get up here. I, I, first of all, my first aim is I do want to exhort you from the, the truth and the message that we find in the passage wherever we find ourselves. The second thing, this is Sunday school, and so I, do, I, wanna, I, wa- I wanna equip you, you know, to understand for yourself the passage and how to study it and how it is set up. And I, a little bit of that this morning. Chapter 12 in Revelation, is, it, this is sort of a pivotal chapter in the whole book of Revelation. Um, for one, and this is not entirely new to you, um, chapter 11 which if you were able to be here about a month ago, I, I covered chapters 10 and 11 at the same time. Chapter 11 w- uh, completed one of the seven sections in the book of Revelation. And I've, I've said that a lot. Seven sections. And chapter 11 completed one of those sections that began in chapter 8. That's the third of the seven sections in the book ran through chapter 11, which means when we come to chapter 12, this is beginning the fourth of those seven sections. And remember, each of those sections covers the entire period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. Over and over again, with ever-increasing intensity, it describes to us the realities uh, of this present age until Jesus comes again. So that being true, we should expect, this being a new section, we should expect uh, some sort of reference to the first coming of Jesus early in, in this section, in this chapter, in, in, in fact. And, and I think we do. We'll see that. And as well as, if this is a section, if this is a real structure that we find arising out of Revelation itself, we should expect on the tail end of this section, in chapter 14, some kind of reference to the second coming of Jesus or the the end of all things, the end of history, and in fact we do. If you turned over to chapter 14, you would find at the very end of that chapter a reference to the final judgment. And so um, just that, it's, it's, it's pivotal in that smaller sense because it starts a, a new section in Revelation. But I've told you that. Uh, a second reason why, and a large reason why this chapter is pivotal in the book of Revelation is because it begins a second a second overall section in the book. Um, I can't remember if I told you this when we began the study of the book, and if I didn't, apologies, neglect on my part. But not only is Revelation composed of seven small sections that, that, that uh, parallel each other in time and progress in intensity, seven sections, but also the book is cut in half, and there are two halves of the book. Um, chapters 1 through 11, um, and, uh, and, then, and then the second half starts the, sec- the second main division, chapter 12 today. What is the difference between these two divisions? Well, here's the main difference that we're going to see. Uh, the first division, what we have been studying all up to this point, 
uh, has focused mainly on the church in the world um, and the persecution that the church faces in the world. Through the, in the end, the church is triumphant, but the first section stressed the persecuted church in the world. It's very earthy. What's going on here? I mean, think about what we saw in the first half. I mean, the first third of the book is written to is seven letters written to churches here. Seven very particular churches and the, and the persecution they are faces. And I, I know your tribulation. I know your trial. I have this against you, but, but persevere to the end. And then you had, you had, um, you had a scroll. And what did the, the seven seals of the scroll represent? The unfolding of the plan of God in history. You had the seven trumpets, warning of judgment coming in this age. On this world, you had the seven bowls of wrath being poured out on this world. It's very here. That's, that's what the first half of the book is. The second section shifts the focus ever so slightly. Um, the focus we'll see is it, there is still an emphasis on the persecuted church. We'll see that in the chapter we're in today. But the shift we're going to see in the second half of the book is that it pulls back the curtain just a little bit. Uh, to, to provide for us uh, or to show us the heavenly and the spiritual struggle and battle going on that, is, that provides the reason for the, the persecution and the hardship in the world. Does that make sense? Uh, in other words, for the reader who's never read this book before and, and, and the reader has now read 11 chapters of hardship, 11 chapters of persecution, in, in the world and, and says, why? Why is there so much hardship in the world? Why are the people of God so beleaguered? You remember that chapter just a, a, few, a few chapters ago? Um, oh, goodness. I, I never can find something when I want to find it. The, the, I forget which chapter it was, but the, 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 the world thought that the church was defeated. They thought, and, they, and they, they made merry. They exchanged presents, and they, they celebrated because they thought that the people of God were dead and they were exterminated. But it, that why is the church so beleaguered in this world? Well, and you really want to know why. The second division of the book, beginning in chapter 12, is about to explain that. Um, in this way, here's another Sunday schoolish word for you. The book of Revelation is mainly apocalyptic literature apocalyptic we have different styles of literature in our day biography uh, historical fiction uh, you, you name it we have different kinds of literature had it in that day one of them was apocalyptic literature and it was a style of literature revelation is heavily that this is not the only place in the Bible that we uh, that we see apocalyptic apocalyptic literature in the Bible we see it in the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Daniel. Daniel contains, and, and you see, it's structured the same way that Revelation is. You read Daniel, and you're rocking and rolling for the first six chapters, and it's fascinating. You understand what's going on. You get to chapter 7, you don't understand anything that's going on because it gets all apocalyptic on you, right? But it is doing the same thing in Daniel. You get to the apocalyptic second half of the book, and it is explaining the spiritual reality, the, the spiritual battle going on in the heavenly places that explains the hardship of Daniel. 
explains why the struggle between Daniel and Babylon, for example. Same thing going on here um, with this transition in Revelation. Um, what's going on in the heavenly places that is being reflected here on earth? Um, and so we're going we're gonna, to that, that, just know that going in. So we need to read the passage together before we dive into it. There will be, because of this transition, some characters that we'll be introduced to that we haven't been introduced to yet. If you read the chapter ahead of time, you may have already seen that. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1, follow along with me as I read the entire chapter. It's not very long. And a great, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in, the he in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have not loved their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the, the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. There's that word again. For a time and times and half a time. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, that sounds familiar to you. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, uh, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear authoritative and necessary word. 
And we ask that you would give us help as we study it today. Would you please give us eyes to see the truth in, a, in, in, in many ways, a difficult passage. Give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see here. Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you give us um, wills to obey what it admonishes us and exhorts us to do? Even if it is to look at you and marvel and trust you and persevere. Would you give us all uh, ears to hear and eyes to see. Give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this chapter pretty clearly divides up into three main sections. If you're just looking at it in your, in your Bible, you might be able to see what those sections are. In my Bible, it's, this chapter is made up of three big paragraphs, three main paragraphs, and those three paragraphs are the main sections of it. And, it, and they, they, um, they, they present, in many ways, they're, they're, they're three different scenes of a battle. Um, three scenes that describe three stages or three different aspects of this battle that's going on. The first stage, if you're taking notes, here's how we're going to break it down. The first stage, verses 1 through 6, it's going to describe what I will call an ancient battle, an ancient battle. It's put forward in the passage as a battle between the dragon and the woman. And hopefully you'll understand in a minute what, first of all, who those two things are and why I'm calling it an ancient battle. The second stage, verses 7 through 12, will teach us that for Satan, this is a losing battle. It's a losing battle. Uh, I'll try to explain what and why when we get to that part. And then finally, the third stage, verses 13 to 17, will remind us that even though it's a losing battle for Satan, for us it is still, until Christ comes again, it is a difficult battle. It's a difficult battle. So, Continue to keep in mind why Revelation was written in the first place. It wasn't, certainly wasn't just written to help them understand the future. It, it wasn't just written to help them understand the why of the persecution and hardship they faced. Um, it was also to remind them that they are more, more than conquerors in Christ. That presently. That's, that's what it's... And so this, would, this, this, this chapter would have been tremendously encouraging to them in that day it should be for us as well because it wasn't just written for them it's written for us today so let's take a closer look at the first uh, scene here and the ancient battle that i'm just uh, describing here verses one through six if you look back at the outset of the chapter uh, there are a few things we need to note so i said earlier that this this ancient battle is described as a battle between a dragon and a woman um, and you're introduced to the woman first in verse one a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And, uh, and then in verse 2, you find out that she's pregnant and she's about to give birth. That seems like a not insignificant detail. And we're going to find out that it, it's, uh, it is significant, but it may not be entirely what you think. All right? We'll come back to that. So you're introduced to the woman. Then in verse 3, you're introduced to the dragon, and he is introduced to us and described as standing ready, and, and, and standing ready to do what? Verse 4 says, so that when she, the woman, bore the child, he, he could devour the child. What in the world is that talking about? Well, judging from the fact, again, 
that chapter 12 begins the fourth of the seven sections in Revelation. And every section talks about the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. When you come to a new section in Revelation, you should expect that maybe there's going to be some reference to the first coming of Christ in this section. And, uh, and if, if that's your guess here, uh, you would guess that maybe this child being born here stands a good chance of being a reference to the birth of Christ. And in fact, if that's your guess, you'd be right. How do we know that? Because look down in verse 5. Look at how the child is described. Described as a male child. Jesus certainly was that. Um, this child also was one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Old Testament and New Testament describes that as Jesus. In the Old Testament, this, is, this language is used to prophesy about the coming Christ. Psalm 2, here's what we read in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. Prophesies about Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When will Jesus do that? New Testament tells us in this very book, at the end of this book in Revelation 19.15, at the second coming of Jesus, here's how Jesus is described in Revelation 19.15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress wine of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So, male child, one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron sounds a lot like Jesus. Other, go back to verse 5. This child was also caught up to God and to his throne. That's a reference to resurrection and ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. So it's clear in the text itself, as you would even expect before you read it, uh, that the child being born here is the Lord Jesus Christ in his, in his incarnation, in his, his first coming. But it's at that point, though, that you need to be careful because when you say that this is a reference to the birth of Christ and you begin to say, well, who is the woman? Your, your assumption might first be, well, that's Mary because she gave birth to Christ. Uh, but I don't think so. I think the, the picture is, is, is much bigger than that. The, the symbol of the woman here, I believe, is a reference to all the people of God. Uh, particularly all the people of God in the centuries leading up to the coming of Christ. Okay? Um, why, why would I think that? Because the imagery of a woman in labor is, is used somewhat frequently in the Old Testament to talk about the Old Testament Israelites in their suffering, in their travail, in their hardship. I'll just give you two examples so you don't just take my word for it. Isaiah chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. Isaiah 26, 17 and 18. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so we were because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. Inhabitants of the world have not fallen. An even clearer example is Micah 4.10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. So the imagery of the woman in labor here in Revelation 12, if it's following 
Old Testament precedent, which Revelation does a lot, then this is symbolic of the people of God in the time leading up to the coming of Christ in the Old Testament. So let's finish out the cast of characters. We'll come back to that. Um, the dragon, it seems obvious, and, 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 it, and it appears at first glance to be Satan. Um, and as you keep reading in the chapter, that, that, that first appearance is confirmed. Chapter 12, verse 9, very explicitly refers to the great dragon who is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty clear. Um, so what is, what is going on here? Um, you've, you've got the woman who is referenced to the, to, the, to the Old Testament people of God leading up to the time of the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ being, the birth of the Son being Christ himself, and Satan himself crouching over this woman, seeking to devour the child as soon as he's born, or that he might not be born. Um, what is going on? It, it, it seems like the most reasonable explanation, and I think the text confirms it, is, is that this represents Satan's most strenuous efforts throughout the entire Old Testament period uh, leading up to the first coming of Christ to stop it from happening in the first place or to kill it once he comes. Um, and if you think for just a minute, you can, you, can, you can see that kind of evil intent happening in the Old Testament. You can see that demonic, uh, must be demonic effort going on throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you're only four chapters in the Bible. When Cain commits a sin, but what sin is it? Murder, right? Cain murders his brother Abel in Genesis 4.8. Why is that significant? Because when you read uh, Genesis, it, it starts to present you two lines. Cain and Abel resemble, represent those two lines, an ungodly line and a godly line. And, and the Savior, the Messiah, would come through the godly line of Abel. But now Abel is gone, murdered. Um, but it's, it's, that's why it's even more significant in Genesis when just a few verses later in Genesis 4.25, when it says that God raised up another offspring, Seth, instead of Abel, in his place. God supplied. So Satan lost that round of battle. Uh, later on, it's, it's clear that the Savior would come through the line of David, right? We learn that in 2 Samuel 7. But how many times I mean, a, a, an evil spirit comes in King Saul and how many he just spends half his life trying to put David to death, right? Um, you, you move on later to the, to the days of Esther. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and you, they're under the, under the sway of the... Um, uh, uh, of the Persians, and you have, a, you have a, a, a Persian governor by the name of Haman, and what does he want to do? Commit genocide, right? He wants to exterminate all the Jews. And if, if he was successful in that, you know, I mean, God would have to raise up another offspring instead of, but that's, that would be tragic if he succeeded, but he was unsuccessful through Esther and Mordecai. Um. And then, of course, uh, you read here. Here's a, here's a scriptural example in this text itself. When you look at verse uh, 4 about this, about this uh, dragon, that his tail 
swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. What is that talking about? I don't want to get in the weeds too much, but that, that uh, the stars of heaven were cast to the earth, that is language taken from the book of Daniel. Daniel 8.10 says, and, and Daniel 8.10 is a prophecy about Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek tyrant, centuries later, where we read in Daniel 8.10, some of the host and some of the stars he threw to the ground and trampled on them. That's, that's a reference to the Israelites. So there, there's another example of, of Satan trying to uh, put an end to the people of God. That's a good, by the way, reminder that Satan is at work in the evil in the world even when he is not specifically named. Because he's not specifically named in Daniel 8.10, but he's specifically named here, right? Well, that's a good reminder. It's become the one final example. As it came time for the Christ to come, and Christ was born, Satan made one last-ditch effort, right? Matthew describes, the Gospel of Matthew describes the, the demonic action of Herod, who uh, puts to death all the male children un, under the age of two. Why? So that he might kill the Christ once he has come. But God had preserved the family in exile in Egypt. All this to say, Time and time again, Satan tried to stop the first coming of Christ into the world. Um, but time and time again, he was unsuccessful. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And I love how if you look carefully at the text here in Revelation 12, it moves, it, it moves straight from Satan's attempt to stop and, uh, the coming of Christ, to, to put an end to it. It moves straight from that uh, right to the Savior's conquering of Satan. Read verses 4 and 5 again. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. That's, that's, that's during the days of Antiochus, cast into the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might be devoured. You could read that as, as Herod unsuccessfully uh, doing his, trying to accomplish his desire. Well, she gave birth to a male child, verse 5. One who's to rule the nations with a rod of iron, he was caught up to God and to his throne. No mention even of the suffering of Christ. No mention of the cross. Just straight to the resurrection, straight to the ascension. You lost, right? And his, and his, and his resurrection ascension obviously signaling the defeat and the conquering of Satan precisely because the resurrection and the, and the ascension demonstrate the accomplishment of the very thing that Satan wanted to stop. Death had lost its sting when he rose again. Death had lost its sting, and Satan, as we're going to see in the next scene, lost his most powerful weapon against the people of God. We're going to see that as we move to the second scene of the, of the battle in verses 7 through 12, which remind us that this battle for Satan is a losing battle. The scene begins in verse 7. And it opens with this exciting description of an angelic battle between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. And again, just that much information, it just reminds you and teaches you um, that there are spiritual realities going on that we don't see. Like there's just, there's, there is more, there's more going on than meets the eye. Reality is bigger than us. 
Um, and, and you don't need revelation to teach you that. I mean, revelation does teach you that. But just think about what you read again in, in Hebrews 13, 2, for example. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I think I've, I think I've seen angels. I, I really do. Anyway. Um, so, verses 7 and 12. Here, this is, I think this is important. Verses 7 and 12. Do not follow chronologically from verses 1 through 6. This is just the camera switching angles. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's not like Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand and then Michael and, and, and them started battling. After, after the ascension, that's when Michael and, 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 the, and the devil and his angels started battling. No, it appears that this battle is what was going on in heaven while Christ was dying, rising on earth. Right? And so through his cross and resurrection and ascension, he, that's how it occurs. And it seems like this is the case because as soon as it tells you that this battle is going on between Michael and his angels and Dragon and his angels, um, there's not much de detail given to the battle beyond that. We're not told what Michael and his angels do in this battle. They, they, they fight and the other, guy, the other guys fight back. In this section, though, much more attention is given to the results of this battle. Uh, and the results that are described of the battle are not results that Michael or any of his angels could have accomplished. They are results that only Christ through his resurrection and ascension could have accomplished. Let's see how, how that is. Because looking at this text, the, the result of the battle is that the great dragon was thrown down. The deceiver of this whole world has been thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. Now looking at the text, did Michael do that? Or did what caused that? The answer, I think, is given according to the text. In verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. This imagery of Satan being thrown down to the earth, it, it, it means that his, his, his work will now focus more on uh, the church on earth. But what verse 10 teaches us is that one of his best weapons has been taken away. Um, what, is, what is that weapon? His power to accuse before God. His power to accuse. He, yeah, I mean, like, he no longer has grounds because of the victory of Christ. He no longer has grounds to accuse those who are in Christ Jesus by repentance and faith. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you hear or feel those internal accusations, if you are in Christ by repentance and by faith, you can ignore them 
because God is ignoring them. They were absorbed in Christ, right? And not only that, but Christ himself is the one interceding for us to save us to the uttermost. Hebrews 7.25. And that is, this is precisely why, already back in verse 6, we're told that the woman fled into the wilderness, meaning the people of God continued to suffer in the world. But it is now from a place, verse 6 says, prepared by God. Prepared by God. Those are sweet words. This wilderness that we're in that's hard, it's a place that's prepared by God for you. And a place in which, verse 6, you are nourished. And you, You're told that a second time down in verse 14. Nourished for a time, times, and half a time. By the way, verse 6 says we're, we're nourished, and it says for 1,260 days. I'm telling you, that's not literal. I mean, like, come on. Um, that nourishment ran out a long time ago, if it is. Um, I, I take, and you, you don't have to believe me, but I, I take 1,260 days to be yet another description of the whole period of time between the first and second coming. Um. There are several different ways in, of saying the same thing in the book of Revelation. And it does. It, it says the same thing in a lot of different ways. Uh, 1,260 1, days, 42 months. You seen that one? Like something's going to happen for 42 months. Well, that ain't very long. Like 42 months. Or later in, this, in, this, in verse 14, time, times, and half a time. All different, and that's taken from Daniel. All are different ways of referring to the time between the two advents of Christ. So, because of the work of Christ for sinners, the power of Satan to accuse has been taken away. It's a losing battle for him. But we need to remember, it's not yet here that Satan was thrown into the lake of fire himself. That, that's coming at the end of the book. Um, and, and, and from there, you know, he's done. But from here, even though he can't effectively accuse the people of God, he can still deceive and persecute the people of God. Which is why, in these final verses, which we need to consider quickly, we need to remember that for now, at least until Christ returns for the people of God, it is still for us a difficult battle. The scene starts in verse 13, and we're told right off the bat what we suspected in the second section. Look again at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Again, this doesn't mean Mary. This is him pursuing the people of God, the church. That word, pursue. In the, in the Greek New Testament, dioko, that word pursue has the connotation of chasing after, pursuing in order to persecute. Right? In, in fact, that word 
is often translated in our English Bibles as persecute. Um, and it's here that we're given clear background to all the persecution of the church that's been described in the first 11 chapters of Revelation. The persecution that we see all over the world to this day. We'll see it in the chapters to come. All the different mechanisms in the chapters to come. We'll see the different mechanisms that Satan has at his disposal to deceive and to, to persecute. You're going to be introduced to more characters that are going to represent the governments of the world and, and deceptive philosophies of the world. I mean, it, yeah. We're given a, a hint at that in the last verse of the chapter where, we, where we're standing on the edge of the sea. The sea is... The sea is an ominous thing in the book of Revelation, which is why when you get to the new heavens and the new earth at the very end of the book, the sea is no more. It's not because God hates water. It's not, it's not literal, right? Satan's mission is to stop the plan of God to save a people for himself. His first attempt was trying to prevent the Savior from coming in the first place. Well, Christ came. His plan now, according to verse 17, is to make war on the people of God any way that he can. But this is undergirded by this promise twice given that we are nourished. We're nourished in this wilderness by Christ himself and protected by the work of Christ on our behalf. So it's a good thing that, that we come to the, the end of chapter 12 and we already know that God is sovereign and well, I'll, I'll, I'll end with the promise that uh, I began with, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Uh, we're going to pray, and then we have a few minutes, miraculously, uh, to talk around our tables. Just talk about this chapter, whatever comes to your mind. Um, yeah, let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for um, the beauty of your word, the truth of it the complexity of it, the, the richness of it. Give us faith to persevere and to do it joyfully. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.